Welcome to episode 77 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. Bobtober continues in this episode. We're actually getting down to the last two episodes in the Bobtober series with this one. It, that makes me kind of sad. I guess there's nothing stopping me from making it Bobtober all year round, right? Well, we'll see. I'm sure the ghostly and horror-related content you've come to know and love, hopefully know and love, during Bobtober will always be a big part of the Bobcast for years to come. This episode is an interview with one of the finest writers of fiction today, especially horror fiction, Mr. Nathan Ballengrud. He is the victim of our interview in this episode. Nathan has had several stories published in varying forms throughout the years, going back to the tale She Found Heaven, which appeared in the January 1995 edition of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. 2013 saw the release of Nathan's very first book, full book, full-length book? Is that how you say it? I don't know. I'm thinking, like, fucking records, right? I'm thinking full-length record versus an EP. Well, I guess it's kind of like a full-length book. It's not a novel. However, it was called North American Lake Monsters, and that was a short story collection. That was followed by 2019's Wounds, which was another story collection. One novella and, I think, five short stories in that one. Let me say this. If you like to read horror stuff, get these two books. No doubt you do need these books in your life if you are a fan of horror fiction. It's so good. Wounds was my introduction to Nathan, and that collection of stories is absolutely incredible. I found the book by accident, totally by accident. I was browsing through a Barnes & Noble. That's kind of my local bookstore in some ways. And I was using the Goodreads app, and I used to do this all the time. I had a list on Goodreads of books that I wanted, right? And I was going through the Barnes & Noble, looking at my list. They had nothing on my list at all. And so I just kind of wandered around looking for another book that might catch my eye, whatever. I found this book titled Wounds. And the subtitle under the Wounds title was Six Stories from the Border of Hell. Very interesting. You have my attention now. You have my attention. I looked at the synopsis on the back cover of the book, and that's what really sold me on the book. The description of two of the stories, Skull Pocket and The Butcher's Table, which are both stories in Wounds. Skull Pocket is about something called Jonathan Wormcake, the eminent corpse of Hobbes Landing, and The Butcher's Table is about a search for the map of hell. Oh, fuck. Sold. I'll, I'll take it. You had me at eminent corpse, I should say. Nathan, you really did. I read that book in a couple days. I blazed through it, like just ate that whole book up. The Butcher's Table is probably my favorite story from Wounds. It's about cannibals, Satanists, and pirates on a rollicking adventure to and through hell. Now, I'm not trying to make the story sound funny because it's much more on the kind of disturbing and frightening side rather than funny but it's absolutely a great story. So right after I read Wounds, I bought North American Lake Monsters, and here we are today. I wanted to talk to Nathan about what he does and about the stories that he's written and who he is and kind of all about him. So yeah, here we are. Nathan's writing, I believe, is very powerful. I think to just call him a horror writer is a huge understatement. The stories in both books, in Wounds and North American Lake Monsters, are very thought-provoking, mesmerizing, yes, very scary, but more than that. And I, I really feel when I'm reading his stories, Nathan's stories, 
that I've transported into the stories. Uh, also, kind of into a deeper part of myself, the way that he weaves the words. Uh, my God, absolutely an incredible writer. I have nothing but high praise for Nathan Ballengrud. You would be doing yourself quite the service if you checked out Nathan Ballengrud's writing, his stories, his books. Now, the episode itself, the interview with Nathan is the main attraction of this episode. But as always, there will be songs, there is music, and the music of this episode is provided by those heralds of hellish hymns, Black Breath. Yes, metal, again, in a Bob Tober episode. The last episode had some gnarly metal in it, right? Well, Black Breath is absolutely gnarly as well, I believe. The first song you'll hear from Black Breath is titled Pleasure, Pain, Disease. That's going to be about halfway through the interview with Nathan. The second and very last song of the episode is titled Slaves Beyond Death, and that's at the very, very end of the episode. Truly fitting music for our horrifying and hellish subject matter in this episode, I would say. By the way, those two songs are off of Black Breath's third full-length record titled Slaves Beyond Death, which was released in 2015. Only two songs this time instead of the usual four? Well, uh, let me say this. Metal songs are fucking long. In this episode, we will also be hearing from this episode's sponsor, Sticker Junkie. That will be coming up in just a tiny bit. Please take advantage of Sticker Junkie's Halloween special they have going on up until the very end of October 2020. It ends 11.59 p.m. on Halloween, to be exact, before that special crawls back into the worm-ridden earth from whence it came. Yes. Can you guess what time it is now, though? Yeah, that's right. It's time for the... Bear of the Episode! Yes, Master. It's time for the Bobtober Beer of the Episode. And this time, that beer is the Modern Love Lager by Plan 9 Alehouse. Modern Love is a crispy lager that is tri-hopped with Mosaic Hops, another perfect beer from Plan 9 for these crisp fall days and nights. Let's call up this beer within our pentagram and force it to do our beerly bidding. Oh, that is good. Really, really good. 5% alcohol by volume. So it's fairly light, not a not too heavy in the alcohol department. Very crisp. Little bites. Just like autumn weather in certain parts of the country, it's already snowing in Minnesota and shit. And other parts of the Midwest, I guess. What the fuck, man? It was like 100 degrees here last week every day, and it's already snowing in some places. Back to the beer. This beer is absolutely fantastic. Another incredible beer from Plan 9. And if you want to know how you can summon this beer from the abyssal depths through the conduit, that is Plan 9 Alehouse. And Plan 9 Alehouse is located at... 155 East Grand Avenue in Escondido, California. You can call Plan 9 at 760-489-8817 or reach Plan 9 Alehouse on the web at www.plan9alehouse.com. The very last thing before we get started for real, I do want to say this at the very beginning. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, 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 please become my patron on my Patreon page. You get exclusive content that's only available on Patreon, exclusive merch like stickers and t-shirts and stuff like that, special episodes, ghost stories, videos coming soon, so much more. It is a great way to help support what I'm doing here 
and get a bunch of extra stuff that really kind of nobody else can get. So it's a pretty good deal. That will definitely help me continue to grow the podcast and bring you better and better content as time goes by as well. That Patreon page is located at www.patreon.com slash I Wanna Party with Bob. Thank you in advance. Here are a few words from Sticker Junkie, and then we'll get straight to the interview with Nathan Ballingred. Stay tuned. With Halloween right around the corner, I'd like to present an alternative to buying candy for trick-or-treaters this year. Why not go to www.stickerjunkie.com and have some custom Halloween stickers made this year? Putrid pumpkins, scary skeletons, grinning ghouls, you name it. If you can think it, Sticker Junkie can take your idea and turn it into a beautiful, high-quality sticker. Halloween-themed or not, you won't ever get tricked when you order custom stickers from Sticker Junkie as these thick vinyl and durable gloss laminate stickers are of the highest quality and are made here in the USA. With seven years plus of outdoor life, the stickers from Sticker Junkie are sure to last for many Halloweens to come. And did I mention the best part? Right now, if you order from Sticker Junkie, simply use the code HALLOWEEN at checkout for 10% off of your order or the code Haunted for $10 off of your order. That's right. No tricks, only treats at Sticker Junkie. But don't delay. This deal is only good until 11.59 p.m. on Halloween night, October 31st of 2020. Don't let this one creep past you. Go to www.stickerjunkie.com and start the spooky sticker project of your nightmares today. I would like to welcome Mr. Nathan Ballingrud to the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You got it. So the first thing I'd like to ask, so we can kind of get this out of the way, but so the listeners get an idea of who you are, as far as your background goes, you you grew up mostly in the American South, I understand? Yeah, yeah. I was born up in Massachusetts, but uh, moved my family moved down to the South, uh, you know, before I was, you know, a self-aware human being. So yeah, most of my life has been down here, Florida, North Carolina, Louisiana, back and forth. Gotcha. And you went to college in the state you live in now, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That's right. You did. And what did you study? Uh, literature? Was that your major kind of thing? Yeah, I was majoring in English. Uh, I did not get a degree. I dropped out before I got within sight of that. After that, after school, you, after college, I should say, you kind of had a run of interesting jobs, right? I mean, you were a cook on an oil rig, mm-hmm. the bartender in New Orleans, that kind of thing. And now yeah. you're, you're working at a bookshop, I think now you're telling me. Yeah, I work at a used bookstore in downtown uh, Asheville called uh, Downtown Books and News. Out of all those jobs, what what was kind of your favorite job? What do you think... If you had to pick one that you would have to stick with for a really long time, what would be your favorite? Tending bar in New Orleans. That was by far the best, best job I've ever had, you know, as far as like, you know, working for somebody. Uh, it was fun. It was like hanging out with your friends. Uh, it was always interesting. You had a parade of 
different kinds of people coming in all the time. And plus, it was just like a little neighborhood bar. So it wasn't a corporate kind of thing. It was just it was kind of like a cheers atmosphere, except a little grungier, sure. uh, a little uh, a little darker. And yeah, it was it was terrific. It was some of the best years of my life. It, were you the were you a nighttime bartender, daytime, or just kind of whatever shift they wanted you to work? I used to, I worked some graveyard in the beginning, but then I settled into the uh, six p.m. to two a.m. shift. So that was usually the shift that I worked. Oh, how how late do bars stay open in New Orleans till like five or six or something, right? Well, that one was 24 hours. We had a guy come in at 2 a.m. 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. And we had the 10 a.m. to 6. And that was it. We had three three shifts rotating around. Yeah. And we didn't have a lock on our door. They may have since put one on. I don't know. But at the time, there was no way to lock the door. Oh, my God. There was no need to. <laughs> what would happen if there was like a hurricane or something? Did you live there during Katrina? Oh, during those? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I wasn't there for Katrina. I moved about a month before Katrina hit. Pure, pure good fortune, um, pure happenstance. But uh, a couple hurricanes uh, gave us some pretty close brushes before then. And uh, yeah, I mean, we would uh, we would fortify the windows. The door wasn't going to lock. Wow. <laughs> do you, now being around people, do you drink yourself or did you back then? A little bit more than when I was tending bar for sure. Well, I'll have some beer, some wine from time to time. But, but back then I was. I was, uh, yeah, a little more heavily. I wasn't like getting drunk, but I was getting buzzed pretty frequently. Gotcha. It's kind of hard not to, and that's your living. Oh, no kidding. And that's what I was going to say is as far as tolerating dealing with drunks, drunk people coming in and hanging out, and that can be kind of rough if you don't drink yourself. That's why I kind of asked. Yeah, I know some people do. I've, I've been fortunate in that it's always been easy for me to stop. When I moved away, it was like I moved back up to North Carolina. I just... You know, I wasn't in the scene, so I just stopped drinking. Sure. And it wasn't uh, for a couple of years where I just said, oh, I know I could, I can actually buy a beer and bring it home. I've never thought about doing that before. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, kind of kind of talk about your writing a little bit. Okay. Becoming a writer, how did that happen for you? You know, I mean, I always look at things, since this podcast has a lot to do with music I always kind of look at things from the point of view of music in some ways. Like this is kind of an example. How I'm always curious, how did like Johnny Ramone learn how to play the guitar or something like that? So in your case, I'm just wondering kind of how, how what were the the kind of the steps that led you to actually writing? Yeah, I, I can't point to a specific thing. It was just kind of uh it was kind of always something that I was interested in doing. I'm, I'm way back in kindergarten. I was writing stories and showing them to the teacher to get my little pat on the head. And uh, I, it, it came from the fact that my parents were readers. They read me stories and told me stories when I was too young to read. But, you know, the idea of telling stories and engaging with stories has been around. It's been part of my life since, uh, since I learned to think. And, you know, it was, I guess when I was a teenager, probably around there, maybe younger, that uh, I started thinking, well, this is a thing that you can do, and this is a thing that I want to do. And so I will. You know, no no, uh, no thought whatsoever to uh, the fact that you have to uh, cultivate uh, craft and you have to put in lots of work and that it's, uh, and that it's like a difficult process uh, or at least a, uh, you know, a serious and painstaking process, sometimes difficult. And so I've like stumbled backwards into it. So there was never a thought like, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to do it. You're just kind of thinking, well, 
I'm just going to, I have these stories. I have these ideas. I'm going to start writing them down or more or less trying to put these things in my head to words, something like that. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was in my teens, that's what I would do. There was no thought towards publication. There was no thought towards, uh, you know, unless it was like in a high school literary magazine, you know, it was so thought towards, you know, the business of it or what it took to do it at a professional level. After I dropped out of college, I went to Clarion, the writer's workshop, and uh, it was a six week, uh, you know, pretty intensive uh, workshop and in which they taught you how to do it like a professional does. Hmm. And I was in no way prepared for that. It was like uh, being hit by a tidal wave. I came back out of that. I found it very overwhelming. came back out. I wrote a couple stories and sold them. And then, you know, I decided that I was not, it was a kind of writer I wanted to be. And I was not remotely prepared to be that kind of writer. You know, I was not somebody who understood anything about the real world. I had no understanding of people. And so I decided I wasn't going to, just because I knew how to, I could, I could write something polished enough to, uh, to sell to a magazine didn't mean to me that I was ready to be a writer. So I just stopped. And uh, that's when I moved to New Orleans. And uh, it was right in the middle of the time when I was tending bar where I just suddenly decided, well, let's give this a shot again. I think I know something now. And it worked out. It was slow. You know, I was a very slow writer. It's, like, it's not like I was seeking a specific kind of experience. I was seeking any kind. I was, you know, growing up, I was highly introverted, completely, almost completely disconnected from myself and from people. You know, I kind of lived in a very tiny little bubble. And, you know, it kind of, I realized that in my early 20s, that process just kind of called that to my attention. And uh, I knew that the kind of writing that I responded to, you know, that my heart responded to was writing that I was at that point incapable of uh-huh. uh, because I had no... I had not walked out into the world at all. Sure. So, uh, so I knew I had to at least do that. You wouldn't even have those, any kind of real image or anything of the world itself in your head, having not experienced it in some ways until you did. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I knew my own very, very narrow sliver of experience and that was not going to cut it. Sure. Not, not for what you wanted to do and not for where you ended up and what you ended up doing. That's for sure. It sounds like. Yeah. Kind of going back to your early life, this is an interesting question. Were you raised in a religious household? Were your parents very religious at all? Not at all. Very secular. Really? Really? Yeah. Interesting. And the reason I'm asking is because of the short story collection, because of wounds and hell being such a prime topic of so many of those stories. Why hell? Why were you, you know, what I'm getting at in some ways is, a lot of people will talk about a topic like that that I've talked to fairly recently where it was a taboo thing in their household when they were growing up and they would get in trouble if they even thought about or mentioned, like if they went out and saw The Exorcist or something like that or listened to yeah. like a Motley Crue record, right? Like, oh my God, there's a pentagram on that record. Get that out of my house. So it's <laughs> kind of like a um, <laughs> like a rebellion in some ways. And I wondered if that's where that came from for you. You know, was hell something that was, you were not allowed to talk about at home. And you're like, well, I'm going to, you know what? I'm just going to write a whole book about this now, mom. You know, no, go to heck. Quite the contrary. Uh, I think, I, you know, the first, the person who introduced me to horror was my mother. She 
was an avid Stephen King reader, a Dean Koontz reader. Uh, wow. She's the one who got me to sit down and watch Salem's Lot on TV when I was little. Oh my gosh. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And she was all about it. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and my dad was very encouraging and, and my, my parents were great to me. Uh, so no, I, you know, I, I'm interested in the hell, not in the religious, not in the hell that comes out of religion, but in the hell that comes out of literature. That's the kind of hell that I respond to. And that's kind of, that's, that's the kind that I'm engaging with. Obviously, there's a religious component to it, but it's like that's not what brings me, brought me in. What brought me in was Dante, Clive Barker, you know, this, those sure. those kinds of examples. As I got older and, you know, as it happens to us all, you know, life starts taking swings at us and we oh, yeah. take some bruises and lose a couple teeth uh, here and there. We, uh, I just, I got, one of the things that constantly, that I'm intrigued by const- or consistently as a writer is the idea of love, what it is, what it means to us when it's not here, like how we how we hurt for it when we lack it, and how it can derange us when we are, you know, caught up in it. It's uh, it's there are so many aspects to it, and so I started thinking of of hell, of love in the context of hell. I know, and where you know we get the we get the you know the cherubic angels and you know shooting their little arrows with the Right. With the uh, hearts for the, you know, so I started, you know, what if, what if it was something darker? I mean, cause, because in my experience, it often is, you know, what if it's uh, something more tumultuous and, and more maddening? And so it seemed natural to me to do two things. One, to examine it as something that exudes from hell and to think of heaven, this, this place that we are conditioned to think of as, uh, you know, this, this, beautifully lit, you know, place, happy place is something more complicated, something darker and maybe more frightening. And so, and that's really all it comes down to is just kind of tinkering with those conceptions and just twisting, twisting the dials here and there, seeing what happens. Okay. So yeah, I get you. All right. So it wasn't based on any kind of like a childhood fear of, of hell where you're almost pushing it out of yourself in that way. That's a very, wow, that's a very interesting view. So that gives me a lot more, you know, kind of understanding of there's something that always confused me in the story of the Diabolist, right? Where the imp mm-hmm. is talking about working in a love mill and, right. and what you're saying about love and kind of its darker components and all that, it kind of started to make more sense in the sense that hell might have a very much different understanding of love than we do, you know, as, as mortals or however you want to say it. I don't know. I can't really put those pieces together in my mind right now, but the, the citizen, the, the denizen of hell's idea of love could be very painful and very, you know, causing pain on others could be part of that. Was that part of that or no? Kind of. Yeah. It's, it's, it wasn't so much that it was, uh, that hell's idea of love is, is necessarily dark and painful as much as as it was uh, for the purposes of those stories that love just comes from hell. That's where it comes from. Um, and so all of its manifestations and iterations are a product of that, of hell and hell doesn't have to necessarily be evil, but it is dangerous. It's dark, it's tumultuous and it, uh, and it can drive you insane. And maybe sometimes it is evil, but it can also be sweet. You know, the, in that story, the love that, uh, the protagonist felt for her father and vice versa was a good and honest and pure kind of love. And that was, that's where it came from too. You know, the love that he was, 
he was aching for his lost wife and trying to summon her back. And he got something else instead. That was an example of love, you know, turning him down a path that he should not have gone, you know, deranging him a bit. And that kind of derangement, that kind of need to be seen and recognized and refusal to open yourself to it is what that whole story is about. Just, the metaphor just kind of mounts as the story goes on. Ah, okay. And so they're actually building an actual love mill out in the lake outside of her house. Also, another thing I wanted to ask about, about wounds, the story, my favorite story in that is the butcher's table. I think, you know, it kind of fluctuates because I recently reread it as well. And initially it was the butcher's table. Now it might be the Atlas of hell. I, I'm, I'm having a really hard time, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about the butcher's table because I saw some similarities, at least in my mind between kind of the way that story goes. It's, it's very kind of adventurous in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, definitely some, some very interesting things going on with the cannibal priest and what was it? The candlestick society, the Satanists, that kind of thing. Candlelight. Yeah. Candlelight society. Thank you. I'm sorry. The question <laughs> is, have you ever read anything or are you a fan of Tim Powers? Uh, I have not read much Tim Powers. Uh, uh, I read the, the Anubis Gate, uh, which Ooh, I loved. Yes. I picked up a copy of Declare. I read the first chapter and bounced out of it. But that wasn't the book's fault. I just wasn't in the right headspace for sure, it. Sure, sure. So I keep needing to get back to it. Uh, so I have not read a lot of Tim Powers. But what I have read, I've, I've liked. It's I, I, I say that because I noticed very slight similarities between The Butcher's Table and On Stranger Tides, which only in the sense that they're both kind of there's pirates involved. Pirates are kind of a big theme of the stories. And yeah. also there's kind of this magic going on in the background in the, in on stranger tides, it's much more voodoo related than in, mm -hmm. in you know, the butcher's table is much more kind of black magic, satanic kind of hell, hell magic in some ways. Yeah. The butcher's table definitely reminded me of that. One question that I have about that story. And it's also in the Atlas of hell the monks with the lock boxes on their heads. What, yeah. where did that come from? What kind of, what, what are those guys all about? <laughs> uh, the black iron monks, uh, yes. they are hell's cartographers. They are, they're, they're an order of monks that, that exists on the border of hell. And their, their remit is to, is to go in there and map it. And they wear them to protect themselves. So they don't, you know, have the physical deterioration that happens whenever you hear, hear or are physically exposed to hell. Uh, where they came from, I, I, I couldn't even tell you anymore. There's, a, there's like a bunch of things, things that I have, I still intend to write about in relation to this, uh, this world, this hell world. Oh yes, uh, yes. that I that have been sitting on the shelf in my mind for like ten years, and I still haven't. They were one of them. I got them out. There's more to come, and but I don't remember where they came from anymore. Now that I'm talking about other authors and you kind of, as far as comparisons go and influence, are there authors that you feel like have influenced your work, your writing in any way? Sure. And I, I, I can, I can point to a, a handful that uh, I can like draw direct lines to, but I should uh, preface it by also saying that, I know I am when I suspect, you know, writers and, uh, you know, musicians or what have you in general are constantly influenced by things. So 
I mean, the, the influence doesn't stop. And and even though I'm going to cite writers, there's also you know there's music, there there are there's art, there's people. I mean, the influences are so multifaceted. The just to cite writers seems unfair, but that's who I'm most able to uh, to cite. Um, I can cite uh, very specifically um, Hemingway, especially he had a strong influence, especially over the first book. He had a I mean, like like many probably white male writers in their twenties, uh, discover Hemingway. He was a north star for a while. Uh, he sure. had he exerted a profound influence on my idea of how stories can work. Clive Barker, I think, is a is a pretty clear one. Uh, I encountered him back when Books of Blood came out. I guess when everyone encountered him. Up until that point, you know, I had been reading a lot of horror fiction, but it had been of a kind of I didn't realize it was a kind of a limited strain, you know, because my blinkers were on. Uh, I read a lot of the big guys, you know, King, Straub, McCammon, Anne Rice, and they were terrific, and I still think they're terrific. But they're also very similar in that the kind of, the way horror tends to work in their stories is that it's a kind of a an intrusion upon the status quo, which must be either beaten back or you're consumed by it, right? It's a, it's, it's a threat. Clive Barker was the first writer that I remember reading in which the horror was trans- transcendental, in which it was embraced by the protagonists, right. and in which even though the transformation would be often bloody and violent, it was also something that brought the protagonist often to a, a different, more rarefied state. It was sublime. It was sublime horror. And yeah. uh, that just blew the top of my head off. I had never encountered that kind of thing, and uh, and I responded to it in a really, really like strong way. It was like this is, I don't know. It spoke to something like fundamental in me that I didn't even know was there. And deep inside of you, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. That's funny that that you mentioned Clyde Barker. I can see a little bit of his influence, especially like with the Love Mill thing. And then in the maw with mm-hmm. the kind of stitched together body parts and all that, that very Clive Barker-esque in some ways. A little bit of Barker, like I said, Tim Powers with you a little bit. Lovecraft, I think a lot of modern horror writers have a certain debt of gratitude to him, I think, and Poe as well. It's almost like somebody can't write a scary story without some asshole coming along saying a very Lovecraftian, right? It's kind of like the go-to thing for reviewers or something to say Lovecraftian in nature. If you ever deal with the cosmic nothingness and the, what the hell's the point of humanity kind of thing, you know, the smallness of man. Yeah. It's, it's become, it's become so well-worn a descriptor that it almost has lost its meaning. But I also think that speaks to uh, the profundity of the influence Lovecraft regardless of what you feel about uh, the fiction, has has influenced our culture in very deep ways. So much so that you cannot have ever read a Lovecraft story and still be under that influence. That's kind of astonishing. And so, I mean, do I cop that influence? I couldn't not, you know. Uh, I've, right. I've, I've, I've grown up in a, in a culture that's, and especially if you're a writer in the genre, that's just infused with uh, with that aesthetic. So certainly, I can tell you as a as a reader, I personally respond uh, to the fiction of Poe more uh, because I'm somebody who is just more fascinated with the monstrousness that dwells within rather than the kind that comes from without. Sure, and that's that's Poe country. But certainly, I can't I can't pretend that 
that Lovecraft doesn't doesn't uh, you know exert his own gravity gravity as well. Sure, that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. And what one of the only reasons I say that is just I think you do kind of touch on that insignificance of man thing occasionally, just like Lovecraft. Since that was kind of one of his things, as far as his mythologies that weren't really supposed to be myth- mythologies, what they kind of grew into, right. was that cosmic insignificance of man. And some sometimes I get that feeling from your stories a little bit, you know. So that was kind of the influence that I was talking about. I might be, yeah, I might be totally off base, but I just think when the main protagonist in a story the vampire story in, in North American Lake monsters. So yes, yes. That character just seemed to be, who, who is the main character in the story? Is it the vampire or is it the teenage kid? Right. And it's almost like in a way he's very insignificant feeling to me in the story, though that may not be the case in your mind or, you know, or what or not. That's just kind of how it came across to me in some ways. Yeah. That's, that's valid. It, it wasn't how I felt about it, but, I don't think that means anything uh, as far as your interpretation goes. I've, I've heard various takes on these stories, of course, and my feeling, my feeling about this is not addressing exactly what you're saying about insignificance, but my feeling about writing in general is it's an alchemical process and I'm offering one portion of it and it's inert until the reader comes. What you read and what you pull from it is going to be different from what the next person does, but it's every bit is, it's every bit is real, right? Sure. It's just uh, sure. It's a, it's a collaboration, and it's a series of collaborations between various people and the story. And so I'm always interested in kind of, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, pleased doesn't seem to be the right word, but it's a cousin of that word anyway, to hear these things, you know? Uh, sure. And sometimes to hear about these stories coming back to me in shapes that are I hadn't considered or are inter- or new to me. Maybe puts it in a little bit of a different perspective or of how somebody else sees it compared to how you see it. Yeah, like any kind of art, really, music painting, drawing, writing, everybody has a different, everybody comes away from it with something a little right. bit different than the other person does, you know? Regarding the, the insignificance, one of the reasons I don't see that there, though I, again, I acknowledge that, that it probably is, is that I don't see the insignificance of man as something scary. You know, I don't see uh, our, our ephemeral, fragile nature as being something to be worried about. I actually find it reassuring. The less influence we have, the more easily we are brushed away by the cosmic whims, the better I feel about things. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> because I think that we have a pretty corrosive touch. And, you know, when I'm feeling depressed, when the, you know, the current cultural mood is weighing heavily on me, I can go outside and, and look at the look at the stars and feel uh, an ease, you know, easy about it. I can feel better about it because I can see all those places that we're not going to mess up and uh i'm like okay all right at least it's contained and then this is such a that it's that it's such a small events what's good like you said like what's going on culturally right now especially in the united states it's such a small thing in the grand scheme of things yeah and it's also goes back you know to the idea of the evil coming from without like lovecraft or coming from within like poe you know i think the evil is coming bubbling up from inside us yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if we can keep ourselves quarantined on Earth, then good for everybody else. We're doing the rest of the universe a favor at that point. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Never looked at it that way, but thank you for that, because that does actually make <laughs> me feel a lot better, to be honest with you. 
I want to ask you a couple of desert island questions, okay? Okay. And I've got three three subjects: records, books, and movies. You have three choices Ugh. in each. Of these. I know this okay. is tough, and don't think too hard on it. I would just suggest just throw them out there, you know, because it's definitely okay. not real. So what? <laughs> what? Because <laughs> if it was, no, it would take too long to decide. If you were stuck with these three records for the rest of your life, what records do you think you would pick? That's also a fluid thing because for me, it changes every minute almost what I would pick, you know? It's like when someone asks you what your top five something is, and it's like, well, you know, all right, without thinking about it, uh, and I'm going to cheat a little bit by picking some live albums. I'm going to pick uh, Anna DeFranco's Living in the Clip. I'm going to pick uh, Springsteen's, that massive live album he did back in the 80s. I can't remember what the title was. Something by Arvo Part, uh, something something classical and uh, and and somber. Oh, okay, okay. So not all rock and roll. Then you threw okay, good. You threw one classical album. That I think that's a wise choice, honestly. How about books? What three books would you take with you? <laughs> that is an insane question. That is absolutely um, an insane question. It, it truly just is madness. <laughs> my, I'd probably pick uh, the collected Hemingway short stories. Any book you pick is going to get old, in like in, you know, in a couple of months. Oh, right. I would probably pick *The Dark Descent*, edited by uh, David Hartwell. Uh, some classic horror stories across the spectrum. I would pick a uh, very slim volume by Fred Chappell called uh, *Bright in the Corner Where You Are*, which was a title that I dislike because it sounds like it's a self-help book, and it's not. This is very beautiful very moving uh, story about a boy and his father in Western North Carolina. One of, the, one of my favorite books. Hmm. Um, and I suspect I could return to that uh, and pull some comfort from it. Sure. Sure. Okay. All right. Very good. The reason I did ask you that is to decide what the next several books I'm going to read. It's going to be <laughs> for one reason. <laughs> no, I love it. I always book recommendations by people. Absolutely. I live and die by that. Right. I mean, that's it, same thing with music as well. I probably should have picked something from the Stoics so that whenever I was feeling really bad, I could read it and regain some perspective, but it's too late. I'll stick with what I got. Okay. You're good enough. Good enough. Now, then the last question would be movies. What three movies? Barton Fink, which is probably my favorite movie, Magnolia. And just for some fun reanimator. Oh, there you go. There you go. Okay. That's a good answer. Okay. You had to throw one horror movie in there or somewhat horror. <laughs> Got to. I can't not I can't not bring horror with me. Good. Okay, great. And that's a fantastic movie too for a good and that kind of gore I'm okay with because that's just right. pure humor, you know, pure like over the top evil dad style gore, right? Just exactly. Okay. It's, it's a cartoon. It, it's a cartoon, exactly. Okay, so getting back to a couple more serious questions. North American lake monsters, stories about werewolves, vampires, skin changers, angel-like, maybe possibly aliens. The real monsters in those stories, though, seem to me to be mostly the human characters in some ways. And that you were mm -hmm. kind of touching on that before I gave you the desert island question. Do you feel that way, that the, the human protagonists, the human characters... And some of those stories are more the monsters than the monsters themselves. I mean, I don't think of it that way. I don't, I don't look at it as that kind of uh, binary. 
I realize this may seem like I'm dodging the question because the easy thing to do would say would be to say yes, but it's not how I, why or how, it's not why I read the stories or how I thought about them when I was writing. I was thinking more along the lines of um, writing about these kinds of stories in a different way, you know, uh, and so that the story isn't about the werewolf and where we get the kind of the predictable, you know, build up with a final confrontation with the werewolf. You know, so many horror stories, so many stories in general, but especially genre stories, the first like half to two thirds of it can be very promising, very engaging. And then once the uh, the third act kicks into gear, it kind of makes, they, they tend to make the same moves, right? You know, so how often do we go into a movie or a story like, oh, okay, now I know what's happening. I know the beats. The real joy of it, which was the first half, first two thirds, is gone. And now we're just going to watch it, you know, play out like we know it's going to play out. Yeah. And uh, it's so disheartening, you know, when that happens. And uh, so I wanted to write stories in which instead of following that story arc, we follow the story arcs of people who just kind of bumped up against those stories. Right. I don't care about the werewolf. I care about the guy who has an encounter with it for a minute and it fucks up his life. Right. And how does that, how does, how does he deal? Right. Yeah. Or the woman who, who cares about the guy with the skins driving in his car and changing identities? What happens to this sad person he bumps into one night? They have a one night stand and then he's gone and she sees this miracle, right? It's ghastly and bloody, but it's a miracle and it left her. What does that do to her? That's the kind of thing that I was interested in with lake monsters. So the real monsters, I don't know. I don't think of these people. I love those people. All those mm. horrible people who did horrible things. I care about them. I don't think of them as monsters. I think of them as, is just wounded and lonely and sad and trying very hard with their own, you know, with whatever tools they have in hand to find a way to live in the world uh, in a way that doesn't make them want to scream. Sure. Okay. That makes, that actually makes a lot of sense then. That does. And that's, that was um, the other part of this question is some of those stories, there are children involved in the stories that, you know, bad things happen to the children. Spoiler alert. If you haven't read North American Lake, Lake monsters in that very first story, when the waitress at the very end leaves the child behind in the rest area, and then there you go where it takes you. And then the monsters of heaven, the child mm -hmm. was abducted and killed. It looks like what I wanted to ask you about that being a father yourself myself as mm -hmm. well, those stories always strike a deep chord with me from those fears of something happening to my own child. Is that where that came from in your case? Were you projecting your own fears a little bit or was that just part of the story that you had in your head kind of thing? No, I was, I was definitely dealing with my own fears. I was absolutely you know, channeling all the anxieties that you have when you're a parent. And you, uh, you know, especially when the children are very small and not capable of taking care of themselves. You know, there was, a, there was a, a segment from The Monsters of Heaven where the kid is kidnapped, in which I kind of like tried to articulate very overtly. One of you know, I, you know, imagine, you know, the, the, your, your kid is kidnapped. You don't know where they are. And you know that wherever they are, they're still expecting you to save them. Right. Yeah. They're, they still have faith that you're going to come in there and save them. And you're utterly incapable because you have no idea where. And I remember writing that that feeling for that character just as a way to kind of like get it out of my head and into the world so I could, yeah. you know, it's easier to grapple with. 
so yeah, those those stories were very explicitly dealing with my my own terrors, something happening to my 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 kid. Wow, wow, that's that's hard, and that's very interesting, and that's almost a way of exercising those feelings from your own mind as putting it on paper or put however you want to say it, just getting it out in the world the way you did. Wow. Yeah, just giving it a shape so you can at least look at it and measure it rather than have it be this abstract black hole in your head. Right. Now, a big part of what I do here on this podcast is talk about ghosts and paranormal things in, in you know, the real world, quote unquote. Okay. What are your feelings? I'm fascinated by ghosts and the paranormal and stuff like that in the real world. What are your thoughts about ghosts? You know, just to simplify it, do you believe in ghosts or do you believe in something supernatural or paranormal or weird could be going on for all these things that all these different people have said they've seen through the years. Yeah. I am very much an agnostic about this kind of thing. I used to be strictly the guy who says, no, of course not. That's, that's, that's nonsense. And I still have not seen anything myself, but I also, you know, this is a cliche, but the older I get, the more I realize how little I know and how little any of us know. Sure. You know, I used to look up at all the adults around me and think that they're all these, you know, these, these fonts of wisdom, just, you know, walking sedately about and no one knows anything ever. We're all just bumbling idiots. It seems to me from my layman's point of view, even science as much as it discovers, it just keeps discover in addition to discovering more things that we can measure and, and weigh and apprehend. It's also discovering more and more doors, more and more questions. I don't know. So I just don't pretend I know anything anymore. I don't believe in the sort of traditional, you know, one sort of cosmic will, you know, uh, who, who uh, guides everything. I don't think that's the case. But I certainly am open to the mystery of whatever else there might be. I, uh, I just don't know. Sure. You know, I always say, if you believe in ghosts, does that mean, and this is more of a question than a statement, does that mean that you believe in an afterlife and or a God and a devil or some, some type of religious belief where there is that overseeing presence in the universe that we go to when we die, some type of heaven or some type of hell or something like that. So being more or less an agnostic myself, I always struggle with the question of ghosts from that perspective. The more and more yeah. I look in, look into it and think about it though, kind of like you, you know what? I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I have. That's why I question a lot of people about it is to get different perspectives to maybe seek out some kind of an answer because I have no idea. And like you said, the older you get, the less you realize that, you know, <laughs> because if you think, you know, yeah. it all, I guarantee you, you do not know it all, not by a landslide, you know? And what a liberating feeling that is, you know, I, sure I, 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 I love increasing the mystery of my life. You know, I love the fact that I know less and less. Uh, that's, that's the world. I mean, everything just seems bigger and foggier and the foggier is not the right word maybe, but well, I mean, it just seems stranger and, uh, I sure. like that. Definitely makes life a little bit more interesting. Plus it's that many more things you can kind of decide to check out and see if you can kind of sort out a little bit and see, there's a lot more opportunity to grow your knowledge or grow as a person the less, you know, in some ways, I don't know, that may not be right, you know, but so you've never had any, you've never had any paranormal experiences or anything like that, that you, that you know of. Uh, no, I don't think so. There have been a couple of times where I've 
you know, I'd be like the dog whose ears pricked up and I'd be like, uh, is that something? Was that something? Probably not. But uh, nothing that I could even really articulate. Sure. The feeling that there was something in the room or, or something like that. But that was, I mean, God knows what that is. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to claim that was something paranormal. Sure. Have you ever been into a place that was supposed to be haunted? And like you just said, like, Oh, I heard a noise back then. Well, you know, it was a, probably a cockroach in the wall or a rat running by outside a raccoon outside or something like that. Yeah, no, I've been in places, especially when I was in New Orleans, that had reputations like that, but they seemed very mundane to me. Uh, I didn't get any kind of feeling from them at all. You know, it's, but whenever I say things like this, I don't want to sound dismissive. I don't want to sound credulous, but at the same time, I also don't want to sound dismissive because I know people who, uh, I don't think of as frivolous people who do feel those kinds of things. Ah. And maybe it's just something uh, as, as simple as a sense, you know, like eyesight that some people have and some people have less of. Uh, and maybe I just have less of it. I don't know. Sure. Okay. Ah, fair enough. No, good answer, I think. Good answer. Well, then the last couple questions, really, I got. Wanted to ask you about what you have going on on Hulu with the movie Wounds was based on the story of The Visible Filth. And that was from the Wounds book. Now you have Monsterland, which you've got four of your stories in. I think you've got You Go Where It Takes You, SS, The Good Husband, and Monsters of Heaven are your four stories that are in those in that Monsterland series. It seems like uh, SS yeah. might be loosely, more loosely based on the story SS. It is. And they don't even they don't cite the story in the uh, in the credits for that, which is which is fine because the uh it is, it, yeah, they take a, take a very different direction than I took. So much so that it's an entirely different piece of work. I saw that when I was looking at IMDb to see which of those, because like I said, I've only seen one. I've only seen you go where it takes you out of that whole series so far. And I was looking at the SS, I think it was the Eugene, Oregon episode. Yep. And I was looking at it going, wait a minute. No, that doesn't this doesn't have like these weird kind of white power dudes in and stuff, right. That are in the SS story. Like, no, 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 this doesn't seem the same, but that's a thing I wanted to ask you about. You did get writing credit for wounds, um, but you don't have writing credit no. for any of the monster land shows. I know I, I don't have writing credit for wounds. That was oh, written you don't. by, Oh, no, oh. it was based on a novella by, uh, but that was written <sighs> by Babak and Vari, the guy who, uh, directed it as well. The director. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And he, that same director did, was doing all the Monsterland stuff too, right? No, he oh, did not. one of the episodes. Oh. He, he, he directed the last episode, uh, which was based on the story of the Monsters of Heaven. But you're seeing his name a lot because he and his partner, Luke and Toe, are producers, executive <sighs> producers of the show. Okay. So, yeah, and it's, it's down to them that uh, the show got, you know, optioned and, and made it all. Gotcha. Okay, so they... Somebody read your stuff, loved it, and did they approach you and say, "Hey, we want to talk to you about making some TV and or movie stuff with your with your writings?" It was uh, kind of, sort of, uh, except so the, the book North America Lake Monsters had been out for a little bit, and I was getting nibbles here and there from people who were interested in optioning stories. All I knew about that world was I didn't know shit about that world, <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to do something stupid and, uh, and make a mistake. So I contacted the publishers at Small Beer Press. I said, what do I do? 
they uh, they know Joe Hill, um, and so they got in touch with him, and uh, through him, I got in touch with uh, film agent Sean Daly. And so Sean said, send me some stuff you think might be adaptable. So I sent him some stuff. Uh, the Visible Filth was the one that he kind of uh, glommed onto and said, this is the one we should try. Mm. And he just sent it out. He sent it to a producer friend of his, Christopher Kopp, and, and he uh, sent it along to Luke and Toe and Babak and Vari. Babak had just made his movie um, Under the Shadow, uh, a beautiful film in a, set in Iran. And, uh, and he liked it. And he got in touch with me, and we talked about it, and that ball got rolling. And then he read Monsters, I mean, uh, North America Lake Monsters, and he said, let's option this too. Let's see if we can make a TV show out of it. The other stories that are in there, are did they just, those are just other authors that they've optioned stories from, or have the people that work on the series actually created those, or those kind of original fiction for the, for the show? The latter, yeah. Um, I, I went out there to L.A. for two weeks, the first two weeks of the uh, – of the uh, writer's room as they, as they launched. Yeah. They wanted to take some stories from the book and they wanted to take inspiration from the book to tell other stories like it. So, uh, or with that same aesthetic anyway, ah. you know, so they, we talked about which stories, uh, they wanted to do. I talked about, I talked through all the stories with them and they, and then they discussed which ones, Mary law specifically, who was the showrunner. It was just a, a long, uh, several sessions of just pitching ideas. Um, let's come up with some new stories, uh, stories that are, are like these and tell the same sort of thing that deal with people the same way. And, uh, and so those other stories were generated in the room. Ah, okay. And so some of them might even be slightly inspired by some of your other stuff that you have going on in some ways or no? Uh, not, not, not directly, uh, that I've going on more. They were inspired by the, the, the aesthetic of the, of the, of North American leg monsters. Gotcha. They're like, okay, let's, let's take this approach to horror and to writing about people and let's come up with a new stories like it. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad they made them. I mean, it definitely has brought Me more, too. uh, potentially good entertainment to my life as soon as I can kick my kid out of the room to actually watch them on TV. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, basically that's about it. I wanted to ask, you know, I've heard rumors from you in some ways in older (laughs) interviews about the skull pocket, a full novel about kind of the town that's the story skull pocket is based in. Yeah. Hobbs landing. Um, Hobbs landing. That's I, I am a, I I have different ideas about that. I have not, I'm working on other things right now. I haven't settled. I want to make sure I do that right because that's one of my favorite stories. I love that setting. I want to do it right. So sometimes I think it's going to be, it would be a book. Although lately I've been kind of leaning towards the idea of doing something serialized, like a series of interconnected novellas, kind of like the way Michael McDowell did Blackwater, just writing a series of novellas that visit this town at different points in its history. And right now I'm leaning that direction that has to take some pressure off of you to do it that way, because you can, you can tell it from different perspectives at different times and kind of however you want to do it. And you don't have to put the whole thing together into one, just kind of linear. Here you go. Here's a whole story about this town in some ways. Yeah. Because I wanted to write about the town over a period of several generations. And, uh, I know you, it's been done, uh, in a novel. You can do that in a novel, but it, it seemed, uh, it was very intimidating and it seemed, <laughs> I just couldn't figure out how to do it, but doing it this way, taking my cue from uh, Michael McDowell, I was like, when I read Blackwater, I was like, a little light bulb went on. I was like, oh, this is how I could do it. 
yeah, we'll see. Awesome. Okay, that's great. That definitely gives me something to look forward to, hopefully. And then the other thing, possibly the further adventures of Jack Oleander at some point. Yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I decided to do uh, novellas about him, too. Because um, uh, the, the first thought was I would, I would do novels about him, kind of like a Travis McGee sort of character. But then I thought, you know, I just can't see myself spending... I just, I just didn't think that was really going to happen. There are other novels that I want to write that I feel more like are real novels, not real novels, but I think of as novels. These, I think, you know, his stories, I think of as like small genre action pieces. And, uh, it made more sense as a series of novellas. I could write them more quickly and zip in and zip out. Hopefully, you know, not, not try to reduce patience. And, uh, yeah, I'm working on one of the first of those right now. Oh, that's awesome. Good to hear. Uh, yeah, I love that story. I love the Atlas of Hell. It's a fantastic story. Pretty gnarly and creepy, I would say, in a lot of ways, you know? <laughs> and was there anything else kind of that you have that you're working on or that could be coming up that you'd like to mention that you'd like people to know about? I've got a, I'm working on, well, I've got a novel that's, that's uh, turned into the publisher. We are going through the, uh, the editing process right now. So that's called The Strange. And I think it's probably looking like January, February, 2022. Uh-huh. Uh, so still a ways off. It's uh, in production, I guess, pre-production. It's, it's, it's being worked on. The draft is done. Uh, I've, there's another novel that I'm in the early stages of called Moon Country. And then, uh, and then, then there's the, uh, the novella, the Symphony of the Lich with uh, Jack Oleander. Oh, awesome. Love the title. It harkens me back to my Dungeons and Dragons days for sure. Exactly. <laughs> did you play, did you play Dungeons and Dragons when you were younger? Oh, sure. oh good. Okay, Absolutely. good. Damn it. I wish I would have known that. Cause I just started replaying it with my seven year old and it's definitely taken a turn for the weird when you play with a seven year old kid. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember doing the same thing with mine. Well, cool, Nathan. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, can't wait for anything new coming out of you writing-wise or anything more happens with TV with you. Yeah, absolutely can't wait. It's great. So I appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Good deal, Nathan. All right, well, you take care of yourself, and I appreciate it. All right, you do the same. Well, there you have it, folks. Nathan Ballengrud. What an absolute pleasure it was speaking to Nathan. I would even go so far as to say that I had as good of a time talking to Nathan as I did reading his stories. Again, high praise, high praise for Mr. Nathan Ballingrad. I would like to tell you how to order your own copies of either Wounds or North American Lake Monsters, and it is super easy. Now, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the big guys, they have the books in stock, no problem. But if you're going to buy and order any of Nathan's books, why not support an independent bookstore? The indie bookstore is becoming rare and rare these days, and that's a very sad thing. That is not a good thing, I do not believe. Let's help keep the independent bookstore around for as long as we possibly can by supporting them, by buying stuff from those stores. Go to your local independent bookstore, see if they have either Wounds or North American Lake Monsters in stock. If they don't, ask them to order a copy for you. In San Diego, I would bet that the store Mysterious Galaxy in the sports arena area probably has both those books in stock because that place is absolutely incredible. Or here's another idea. 
go to www.indiebound.org. That's I-N-D-I-E-B-O-U-N-D.org and search Nathan Ballengrud, a ton of books that Nathan has had stories in, plus wounds, North American Lake Monsters, pops up right away. IndieBound.org is a rad website. You can search the book you're looking for. You put in your zip code. Boom, right away, a listing of independent bookstores near you pops up, all the closest bookstores, which was really cool because I discovered a couple bookstores that are pretty close to me that I had no idea about. So yeah, it's a great asset, a great way to support small local business and your small local bookstore. There is one other way that I'll mention to get Nathan's books. Go to www.malaprops.com. Let me spell that for you. It's M-A-L-A-P-R-O-P-S.com. Type in Nathan Ballengrud in the search bar. There they are, the books. Buy them. And the cool thing about buying it from malaprops.com is this. You can request signed copies of the books. Yes, signed by Nathan himself, not Bill, the, the bookshop's cat that wanders around you. Yeah, actually, Nathan. Actually, I don't know if Malaprops has a cat named Bill, but maybe they'll get one. I, I don't know. They probably should. Malaprops, by the way, is an indie bookshop in Asheville, North Carolina, where Nathan lives. So if you order from them, they'll have Nathan sign them. There you go. What a deal. Well, that's going to do it for me and this episode. Thank you so much to Nathan Ballengrud for taking the time to talk to me on this episode. Thanks to Black Breath and Southern Lord Records for giving me permission to play the Black Breath songs in this episode. And thank you to Sticker Junkie for your support of the Bobcast. Remember, you can get the finest custom stickers made for you by visiting www.stickerjunkie.com. Do it today, and you still have time before Halloween to get in on that Halloween special that was mentioned in the ad way back in the episode. Don't let that one turn into a pumpkin and get away from you. Get it? Pumpkins, Halloween. Of course, as always, thank you for listening. Don't forget, please subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash I want to party with Bob. I would definitely appreciate it, and that would definitely help me to continue to bring you the finest in punk rock, metal, horror, paranormal, and political podcasting. Yes, all in one pretty little package. Here's Black Breath with the song Slaves Beyond Death. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy.